You've been sleeping for a while. You're not really sure how long, but it's peaceful. Quiet, dark, still. Couldn't really ask for more. You might be a little cramped, but as long as you don't move, it'll be fine. And you haven't moved. You can't. You were very particular as to how this would go, and thankfully your family followed your instructions. Now all you have to do is rest. Wait a second. What's that sound? Are those shovels? Is that light? Excuse me. Well, I suppose there are some dangers to being a corpse in the 19th century. I'm your host, Harper Hunt, and this is Cursed Knowledge. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. The name doesn't matter when the object is the same. But while a rose might still have the same physical attributes if it were called something else, our opinion of it could change drastically. Words, and especially names, have power. Anyone who's been a victim of playground nicknames knows the impact a name can have. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will give me crippling self-esteem issues. Titles have weight. This idea shows up all the time in old stories. There are dozens of tales where the only way to defeat the villain is to call them by their real name, the story of Rumpelstiltskin only being the most popular. Odysseus tricked the Cyclops by claiming his name was nobody. Folklore surrounding fairies cautions listeners to never give their name to strangers. Even modern stories incorporate this idea. I believe the Harry Potter series uses you-know-who, or the ever-subtle he-who-must-not-be-named, more times than actually calling him Voldemort. What you call things has incredible impact on how they're perceived. Would you rather stay at a cottage in the forest or a cabin in the woods? Continuing the Harry Potter reference from earlier, Tom Riddle sounds much less threatening than Voldemort. We associate one name with a dark wizard, who tried and failed to kill a baby, and the other with just some guy. As with most things, this extends outside of the literary world and into the real one. For example, grave robbing is a hideous crime. Defiling graves and disturbing someone's eternal peace all while causing immense distress to the relatives of the deceased. Unless, of course, you're an archaeologist. If you're being funded by a university and the find goes on display in a museum, then it's perfectly respectable and something quite admirable. If you're doing it for personal benefit, well, shame on you, you disgusting criminal. The Egyptian pyramids were built for the explicit purpose of protecting the riches and bodies of dead pharaohs from thieves. But Howard Carter can show up funded by an earl and suddenly, it's no longer desecrating a tomb. It's the greatest find in all of Egyptology. 
The difference seems to come down to two things, money and purpose. Did the perpetrator have money? And what happens to the objects taken? We know the items found in King Tut's tomb are now on display in Egypt, and the tomb itself has been turned into a tourist attraction. So Carter's story becomes one of adventure, with a dose of supernatural suspense if you believe in curses. But that's an example from the Indiana Jones school of grave robbing, a rarity in and of itself. Most grave robbings are more Frankenstein in nature. Of course, I don't mean bringing people back to life or zombies, but I do mean that most disturbances involve stealing bodies and science. Specifically, stealing bodies for science. In the 18th and 19th centuries, medical science was advancing in leaps and bounds. The first blood transfusion was performed. The smallpox vaccine changed the world. And everywhere, sanitation standards were raised and surgical procedures were becoming safer and more common. But as more and more people enrolled in medical school, a new problem arose. The schools just didn't have enough bodies. And I don't mean bodies as in students. They had plenty of those. Medical schools were expanding rapidly. No, I mean corpses. Medical students needed to be trained in anatomy. It was a detailed knowledge of anatomy that separated the study of medicine from homeopathic or botanical treatments, hence the need for real human bodies. Donating your body to science wasn't a thing yet. While it varied by country, it was usually only executed criminals that made their way to the dissection table. Great Britain had the 1752 Murder Act that expressly stipulated that only the corpses of executed murderers could be used for dissection. But regardless of where you lived, there was a surplus of medical students and a deficit of bodies. I'm sure those of you familiar with supply and demand can guess where this is going. If you guessed grave robbing, you win a prize. The prize is having a horrible imagination and the satisfaction of being right. In all seriousness, there was a huge increase in grave robbing. Well, technically, body snatching. If we're splitting hairs... Grave robbing doesn't refer to the removal of a corpse, but theft of the burial site. If they steal your jewels, it's grave robbing. If they steal you, it's body snatching. The distinction is very important. Stealing a corpse wasn't new, but usually the corpses were famous in life. Body parts of saints and important religious figures were taken frequently in war or have disappeared throughout history. Similarly, political leaders would frequently have their eternal rest interrupted. Charlie Chaplin and Eva Peron both went missing for a few decades after their death. There are even rumors that Alexander the Great is secretly in Venice and Shakespeare doesn't have his head. But these were exceptional people, in life and even in death. Who they were mattered and was the driving reason behind the theft. So both grave robbing, and body snatching at the same time. Not so for the others. Think of it like the difference between being assassinated and being murdered. In both cases, someone is killed. But one means you were important. The other means you were a statistic. And there were a lot of statistics. The term body snatching was popularized in the UK and the US throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries though the first recorded case goes all the way back to 1319 in Bologna, Italy. 
those who engaged in body snatching got the much cooler name Resurrectionists or Resurrection Men. They were legitimized in public perception through common knowledge and a fancy new title. Now you weren't a lowly grave robber or a body snatcher. Terrible names with horrible associations. No, you were a resurrectionist. That sounded much nicer and more important. Additionally, since interfering with a grave was only a misdemeanor in the UK, it became increasingly common there. High demand met low risk and high reward. Resurrectionists would frequently work in teams to obtain bodies. One popular method of retrieval was to dig a hole at the head of the coffin, break the top open, and use a rope to pull the corpse out. Don't worry, they'd usually put all the valuables back in the now-empty coffin. You know, to make sure they didn't get lumped in with the uncouth grave robbers. There were so many resurrectionists active that sometimes they'd dig up a grave only to learn that another team already took the body. This became so common that it was standard practice for relatives and friends of the deceased to stand watch over the body until burial and even afterwards to prevent theft. Iron coffins also became increasingly popular. Have you ever seen those iron bars over graves that look like zombie protection? Yeah, those were installed to deter tampering with the grave. And hey, being a resurrectionist was a gender-inclusive job. We don't know of any women that did the actual digging, but there are recorded cases of women posing as grieving relatives to the deceased to collect their bodies prior to burial. Or they would attend funerals to take notes of the grave's location and any security measures that were installed. So, yay feminism? Well, I'll leave that debate to the scholars. Well, now that you have a general understanding of what people were willing to do for bodies— I want to tell you the story of Charles Byrne and John Hunter. Charles Byrne was known to the public as the Irish Giant, and for good reason. He stood at 7 feet 7 inches tall and was beloved by the public. He was known to be quite gentle, and one newspaper pronounced him the finest display of human nature they ever saw. Unfortunately, Byrne's height was caused by a genetic disorder that greatly impacted his health. He passed away when he was just 22. This might have been the end of Byrne's story, but then I wouldn't be talking about him. No, Byrne's story reached infamy because of another man, John Hunter. Hunter was a highly respected surgeon and anatomist, who also had a private museum where he displayed unusual specimens. When Hunter encountered Byrne, he was immediately fascinated by his extreme height, so naturally he offered to pay Byrne for his corpse in advance. Byrne refused. He didn't want to have his body put on display. In fact, Byrne was so upset by this offer that he actively took steps to ensure that no one would have access to his body when he died. He made arrangements with his closest friends to have his body sealed into a lead coffin, quietly shipped to a coastal town of Margate, and buried at sea. But Hunter was one step ahead. He learned about the plan and intercepted the coffin on its way to Margate. Byrne's body was stolen and taken back to Hunter. Hunter reduced Byrne's body to a skeleton and four years later put it on display in his museum. Upon his death, Hunter's collection was donated to the Royal College of Surgeons, who preserved the collection and his name at the Hunterian Museum. Byrne's skeleton has remained the museum's showpiece for over two centuries.
In 2012, there was a public movement to take Burns' skeleton off display and finally give him the burial he wanted. The museum decided to continue their exhibit. Because Hunter was rich and well-respected, he got away with it. Whereas a less connected man would have at least been investigated for the obvious theft of Burns' body, Hunter never was. Instead, he got his name on a museum. After all, he wasn't a no-good body snatcher. Why, John Hunter was a man of science. Going against a man's final wishes, dissecting his corpse, and putting his skeleton on display is all perfectly acceptable in the name of science. Because we call him a doctor and refuse to give him the insulting titles given to others, Hunter and his legacy remain untouched. But wait, it can get worse. There's a childish rhyme that goes, Burke's the butcher, hair the thief, and knocks the one who buys the beef. Could be cute, but like most cute childhood rhymes, it's referencing something much darker. The Burke Hare Murders. William Burke and William Hare lived in Edinburgh, Scotland in the early 1800s. They became friends and eventually lived together in Hare's lodging house, which would soon become their hunting grounds. In 1827, a lodger died in Hare's house while still owing Hare money. Burke came up with the idea that they should sell the man's body to cover the cost. So they did. They purchased a coffin and filled it with bark, all while hiding the real body under a bed. Once the coffin was sent off to burial, the two men took the corpse to famed anatomist Robert Knox. Knox was a fellow at the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, where he taught anatomy. He performed dissections twice a day, and once said that his lessons drew over 400 pupils. His reputation was formidable but he required a steady supply of bodies in order to teach. So when Burke and Hare appeared on his doorstep, he was interested. He purchased the body and said he would be glad to see them again when they had another one to dispose of. Two months later, a lodger at Hare's house fell ill. Maybe it was because fever was bad for business. Maybe it was out of greed. The motives are unclear, but what is clear is that Burke and Hare killed them and once again sold the body to Knox. It was like a dam had been broken. The two went on to kill over a dozen more of Hare's lodgers within a year, and they refined their killing method, too. Anything too obvious, such as a slit throat or carved-in skull, would indicate foul play and incite an investigation, especially when the excuses that Burke and Hare gave for the surplus of bodies they acquired was that these people had died in their sleep. So the two came up with a new method. They would get their targets drunk so they couldn't fight back. Then Hare would suffocate the target with a pillow while Burke lay on their chest. This muffled noise and restricted movement. Additionally, Burke's weight on the victim's chest also prevented their chest from expanding to get any air into their lungs. It was a killing method that would have been undetectable with modern forensics. Knox complimented them on the fresh bodies and did not ask any further questions. Even when the faces of the corpses that were brought were instantly recognizable to him and his students. Burke and Hare were eventually caught after a lodger named Anne Gray found one of the bodies and alerted the police. Burke and Hare had already delivered the body to Knox when the police showed up. Their conflicting stories about what happened prompted an investigation, and the scheme quickly unraveled from there. Both Burke and Hare tried to blame each other during the trial. 
But ultimately, Burke was executed, and his corpse was publicly dissected. Hare was released and fled for his own safety. And Knox? Nothing. After all, Knox was a well-respected doctor. He couldn't possibly have known what Burke and Hare were up to. While those two murderers were clearly doing this for personal financial gain, Knox wasn't. He never made money off of their transactions. And if he was at all suspicious, well, he needed the bodies for science, to help people. So Knox was never formally charged. Though his reputation did suffer, he continued to teach anatomy until his retirement. Both Hunter and Knox were as involved in body snatching as any other resurrectionist, but they were never branded with the title and so avoided most of the consequences. Their wealth, social standing, and the veneer of for science gave them protections others could never have. So why? Why have I regaled you with tales of giants and murders and general unpleasantness? For one reason. I'm a big believer that history repeats itself and we have to acknowledge our past to prepare for our future. Body snatching didn't stop. It just became less popular. There are still reports of body snatching all over the world, and many are still for medical purposes. As transplant surgery develops, there's an increased demand for tissue and organs. They might not need the whole body, but it's still worth something. But more than that, we still see that certain people are given different titles in an attempt to elevate them from the average person. Kylie Jenner is called a self-made entrepreneur, not a product of nepotism. Elon Musk is a revolutionary visionary, not a loose cannon. If you're poor, you're crazy. If you're rich, you're eccentric. We auto-tune the narrative around powerful people to make them seem special and protect them from scrutiny. So don't be fooled. Keep an eye on the language surrounding us because it just might be hiding something. I hope you learned something new, and remember, the real curse is sharing this information with your friends, family, and unsuspecting coworkers. If you enjoyed this production, like, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, tell us some of your most cursed knowledge by joining us on the forums at epsilontheory.com. Cremation dates back to the Stone Age, 